Growing up, I'll be honest, I don't know that I always fully understood what Easter was about. Of course, you get distracted with the, the bunnies and the, and the baskets and the chocolate and the candy and the egg hunt. Uh, but even beyond that, growing up in a Christian home, I was a little bit confused about uh, the point of Easter. Um, when I was in fourth grade, we had this uh, journaling exercise. Anybody remember the, the, the marble composition books? Raise your hand if you're with me. Yes, amen, amen. Um, and so we had to, I think it was once a week, we had to do a journal entry, and you could write about anything you wanted. You had to fill up two pages, and the idea was just to get, you know, a little fourth graders writing, and, and it didn't matter what you wrote about, and, and for some reason, this uh, fourth grade teacher uh, had to then be paid to read all of these journal entries. And so I wrote one spring about Easter and about what we were doing and what we were celebrating. I wrote in there how Easter was the celebration of Jesus' death on the cross, and I'll never remember, I have this like image burned in my mind of, of my fourth grade teacher and his red pen wrote in the margin, no, Easter is the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And I was like, nope. Like I was a Christian kid, I was writing about my faith, I should have known better, right? I should have known that. But somehow I had become confused and, and I had grown up in the church, but, but the, the cross of Christ had become a focus even of the resurrection, which is all about, or even of Easter, which is all about the resurrection, but, but I think looking back on that, it's not that hard to understand how I made that mistake. You see, for a number of reasons, I think the cross has taken up more focus in many churches and in the faith of many Christians. In fact, if you look at the Western church, the death of Jesus has always been more central than the resurrection of Jesus. That's not the case in the Eastern church. The Eastern church is much more focused on the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think one of the reasons this happened in the West is because that the cross of Christ and his atonement for sin was the subject throughout the centuries of much more debate, theological controversy, and misunderstanding, and so it required more attention to clarify what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. And so as a result, through the centuries, more time has been devoted to the cross of Christ, certainly for good reason. But you look at the Roman Catholic tradition, the tradition that all European and American Protestant denominations came out of, in the Roman Catholic tradition, there is what I would say a fixation with the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus, right? Images and icons of Jesus hanging on the cross fill most Catholic churches, and I think that this perspective has influenced the Protestant church as well. But beyond some of that, that history and theology, I think there's, a, there's an experiential, a personal dynamic to this as well. Like I said, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I embraced Jesus as Savior early on, but my understanding of what that meant, my understanding of the gospel and living the Christian life was almost solely focused on the reality that Jesus had died for my sins. And so my Christian faith, my identity, and my life was all about the old life of sin that Jesus had redeemed me from through his death on the cross. And so I knew I was forgiven. I knew that I would go to heaven one day, but I felt as though it was up to me to then live that out, to obey God, to, to live out my new Christian identity. And so the resurrection to me growing up and into even early uh, adulthood was nothing more than Jesus' final miracle. The resurrection was just the cherry on top of, of an atonement Sunday, you could say. Just his, his last biggest miracle. And I think for a lot of us, there's something oddly comforting about this perspective. See, we get to keep Jesus as our Savior, but we also get to hang on to some of our own ability and our own need to work hard and, and to live out the Christian life on our own. And Americans like that, right? We want a job to do. We want to take part. We want to, we want to work hard in this salvation. And so Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he's our Savior. And now we live that out. 
but it fails to understand adequately the human dilemma. See, all humanity has the same dilemma, that we were created to be in relationship with a loving God. And even now, I think every, every person on the planet longs to be connected to their creator, but that relationship has been severed by sin. And we are not only willful participants in our rebellion against God, but we are enslaved in bondage to the pain of sin, the oppression of sin, and we cannot escape it. And one day, as a result, all men and women will die and will face eternal judgment. We're all, you could say, on a collision course with death. And humanity lives a life that is empty, that's hurting, that's overcome by sin, unable to change, in desperate need, in desperate need of a Savior, of a gospel. Gospel is, is, is the word meaning good news, the good news of God's rescue plan. Now, many Christians, if I asked many Christians, and even some of you today, perhaps, if I asked you to summarize the gospel, you would say, Jesus died for our sins. Now, praise God, that is a true reality. But I would also say this, that is only part of the gospel. In a sense, it's only half the gospel. Now, some people, me saying that, me just saying that is a troubling statement. Some of you, me saying that that Jesus dying on the cross is, is only part of the gospel is a controversial statement. For others, it's quite obvious. But I think that based upon the teaching of the very word of God in the New Testament, thinking exclusively of the gospel as Christ's death on the cross is an incomplete gospel. Because listen, if Jesus had stayed dead, we would have no salvation. If all he did was die on the cross, there would be no salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says it very bluntly like this. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Friends, that means that your faith would be a waste. It would be, it would be nonsense. See, the death of Christ without the resurrection, it's like this. It's like a train with no tracks. It's simply not going to work. The death of Jesus without the resurrection is like a Pennsylvania winter without snow, right? It's just not right. There's something that's just not right about it. The death of Jesus without the resurrection is like a, a piece of warm toast on an early morning with your coffee, and you find out there's no butter, right? It's just not even worth it. Like, that thing goes right in the trash. It's not worth it without the butter, right? See, the the death of Christ must be followed by the resurrection. The saving work of Jesus is not just him dying for us, but him rising for us. See, it is faith in Jesus that saves us, but it's faith in his complete work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and one day his return. The scriptures make it quite clear that the resurrection is not just some big final miracle. It's not just the, the cherry on top. It's not just his final curtain call that, yes, it's a big deal, But it's just the final curtain call. No, it's more than that. The resurrection itself is a crucial saving work in our lives. By the resurrection, we are born again. By the resurrection, we are adopted and raised to eternal life with Christ. And it wasn't until I was probably about uh, 22, 23 years old. I was, I was a seminary student at Westminster Theological Seminary, and the Lord connected me uh, because everybody at Westminster had to go through Richard Gaffin's class, classes. And Dr. Gaffin showed me the profound necessity, and the personal impact of the resurrection. Now, Dr. Gaffin was one of these guys. He had, he had, he had taught systematic theology for 40 years, taught through the Pauline, Pauline epistles, the, the theology of Paul for 40 years. And he was one of these guys that was like probably old when he was a teenager. You know, I think we have his picture you can put up there. And we all called him Dr. Gaffin. There were other young professors we just called Mike, other professors you just called Prof. 
Everybody called him Dr. Gaffin. I, I would imagine even his wife called him Dr. Gaffin. I don't know that. But he was a scholar through and through, and, and, and he loved the Word of God. He was still using overhead projectors back in the early 2000s that he had had for decades. His notes, I'm not making this up, his notes were yellow, not because they were on yellow paper, because he had been preaching from the same notes for so long, the paper had begun to yellow. And, and his notes, they were scribbling in all the margins as he learned new insights, and he, he didn't want to print out new notes, but he just kept adding in handwritten comments all over these things. And he loved, the, Jesus loved the church, loved training pastors, and he loves the impact of the resurrection. And he says this, you can see, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the ground of the believer standing before God and the hinge of the transformed life. And so look, as we turn now and head toward the celebration of the resurrection on four weeks in Easter, we're going to do a deep dive into this reality, into the power, into the impact of the fact that Christ is raised, that he is raised to save us. See, the resurrection matters. It matters because we are raised with Christ. That's going to be our big picture theme for the next four weeks. Look at some of these scriptures that teach this truth. 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. 2 Corinthians 4, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with him. Ephesians 2, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Colossians 2, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. See, the resurrection matters because we are raised with Christ. The Christian gospel is the reality that through faith we have been rescued out of a life of sin and transferred into a life of righteousness with God. See, our old life of sin has died with Christ and the new life of righteousness and peace and joy and victory has been raised with Christ. We have been, we are being, and we one day will be raised with Christ. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at these four big picture realities. This morning, I just want us to see very simply that the resurrection is central to Christ's work and our salvation. Next week, we're going to look at the reality that the resurrection secures our future resurrection into eternal life. Thirdly, on Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the reality that the resurrection brings our new birth into righteousness, and then Easter Sunday, we'll look at how the resurrection empowers the Christian life. And so this morning, I just want us to begin with this very basic premise, a premise that I believe is basic yet extremely revolutionary, that the resurrection is central. The resurrection is central. And the point that I want us to see this morning, first of all, is that the resurrection is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Now, if this is true, that means that the resurrection must have actually happened, right? The Christians in the first century church in the city of Corinth were actually facing false teachers that were coming into the church and saying that there is no resurrection, people can't come back from the dead, and that means Christ hasn't come back from the dead. And so that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and he responds and he says to them, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So British pastor from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, thinking through this, he says this, if it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. It matters that much. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. And when we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about something metaphorical or a spiritual resurrection. We're talking about a literal, historical, bodily resurrection. A dead man walked out of the grave. 
See, Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, he lived, he died, his body was buried, and three days later, he walked out of the tomb. And we have documents, historically reliable Greek New Testament manuscripts that affirm Jesus' resurrection. We can rest on solid evidence for the historical resurrection, I think, in three main areas. First of all, that the tomb was empty. It's a historical fact that Jesus was crucified and buried. And most scholars, even some non-Christian scholars, affirm that three days later, the tomb was empty. Now, of course, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't agree with us that, that he rose, but, but many would, most would agree that the, the tomb was empty. If it wasn't, those who were opposed to the early Christian church would have produced the body because the early Christian church was founded on the, the resurrection, right? The question is why? Why was the tomb empty? Some would say, well, a ragtag group of, of disciples somehow overpowered the Romans, stole the body, and coordinated a resurrection host. But that, that is about as far-fetched as any myth of history I could imagine. The tomb was empty. Secondly, we know that there were eyewitness accounts, not, not decades later, but weeks later, public eyewitness accounts. Again, the New Testament records the testimony of these eyewitnesses. In one instance, over 500 at a time testified to seeing the resurrected Christ. This testimony was made in the, in the face of intense opposition. These men and women had no reason to make up a resurrection account. And many of them died for their claim to having seen the risen Christ. Thirdly, the historical impact proves, validates our claim of the resurrection. Within weeks of the resurrection, it became the foundation of the first century church and the Christian faith. Because of the, the, the resurrected Christ, skeptics and opponents were converted There was an otherwise completely unexplainable explosion of the early church, a massive growth that included radical changes in religious practices, in social structures across the the Roman world that can only be explained by the reality that Jesus rose. So you can look at these facts of history, the empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, the historical impact of the early church, and the only reasonable explanation for what we know of history is that, that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. It's only if you presuppose, well, of course resurrections can't happen. Only if you presuppose that are you forced to come up with an alternate historical theory that is much less reasonable for how things happened the way that they did. So the resurrection happened. It is central to the Christian faith. But we must also maintain, because Scripture maintains this, that the resurrection is essential not just to history or the church, but to Christ's saving work. Look at Ephesians 4.25. Our righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, in Christ, who raised him from the dead. Excuse me, in him, I guess is God. Believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection is essential. See, the death and resurrection of Christ are two parts of one unified, one unified, inseparable work of salvation. You got to have both, right? Like, like a pair, you got to have both, right? Like Abbott without Costello like Holmes with no Watson, like Tom without Jerry, or Lennon without McCartney, or Wayne without Garth, or Bert without Ernie, or Han without Chewie, unless you have both of them, it just doesn't work, right? We need the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. This guy by the name of Adrian Warnock is a Christian leader in London, and he's written this excellent book called Raised with Christ, published by Crossway. I encourage you to write that down or, or 
get out your phone and order it right now on Amazon. If you are interested at all in studying this topic and going deeper into what the personal impact of the resurrection is, I highly recommend this book. Now, what's interesting is that Warnock is not a pastor. He's not a trained theologian. He's a doctor a medical practicing doctor. And he approaches the topic of the resurrection with research and with the precision of a medical professional. And his book is rich with insights from Scripture, and he relies heavily on some of the great theologians and pastors. And so his book is filled with, with quotes and references to Augustine and John Calvin and Ritterboss and Charles Spurgeon and John Edwards and John Piper. And in one place, he's pulling particularly from this Dutch theologian, Herman Ritterbach, Herman Ritterboss and and Warnock says this. He says, The perfect life, obedient death, and life-giving resurrection of Jesus should be thought of as one saving work, a combined inseparable act of God. It's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that salvation is possible. There is a single complete arc of movement down through the incarnation, death, and burial, and then up through the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Jesus himself is our salvation. Salvation. Now, this idea that the death and resurrection must go together, and the gospel includes both, is so true that most theologians agree that even when you're reading Scripture, and Scripture only mentions the death of Jesus or only mentions the resurrection of Jesus, most of the time the, the authors have both in mind. So, for instance, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul is not thinking of the crucified Christ apart from the resurrection. And so to give you one more quote, if you're not convinced, John Calvin, 16th century French theologian and reformer, writes this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Although in his death we have an effectual completion of salvation, because by it we are reconciled to God, Satisfaction is given to his justice, the curse is removed, the penalty is paid. Still, it is not by his death, but by his resurrection that we are said to be begotten again to a living hope. Because as he, by rising again, became victorious over death, so the victory of our faith consists only in his resurrection. By his death, sin was taken away. By his resurrection, righteousness was renewed and restored. Our salvation may thus be divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sin was abolished and death annihilated. By the latter, righteousness was restored and life revived. Amen indeed. Amen indeed. Some of you have heard my little way to understand and summarize this with with a geometry lesson, so apologize for the geometry. But I like to think of the gospel of Jesus Christ not as a circle, but as an ellipse. Now, when you, you set out to draw a circle, what do you do? You have one center point, you go out, what is that called, the radius, and you go all the way around the one center point, right? But with an ellipse, you have to start with two points, now, mathematically, I don't think I have those two points in the right spot, but, but you find two points and you draw out from both points, and that's how you get an ellipse, right? So I think we should think of the gospel not as a circle, but as an ellipse. One point being the death of Jesus, the other point being the resurrection of Jesus. And around those two center points forms the good news of the Christian life, forms what it is that we give ourselves to, what Scripture teaches from Genesis to Revelation. the center of the good news is these two realities, and I would go so far as to say that please don't share one without the other. Don't share one with your children, with your neighbor, with a non-believer without sharing the other. They must go together. Christ died as an atonement for sin to cancel our debt, and he rose from the dead so that we would be born again into eternal life. Now, I know I've gotten a little like scholarly and theological here at the beginning, but this is so personal. This gospel is so personal 
for us, for the writers of Scripture. This is what transforms us, right? This is why Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, and I say myself, and I hope you say with me, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's been raised up now in me. I've been raised up with him. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christian, this is what transforms you and gives you life. This is the work of Christ for you because he loved you, because he gave himself up for you. The resurrection is central. It's central to the Christian faith. And I want us to see secondly this morning that the resurrection validates Jesus as the Savior of the world. Oliver, can you grab my water bottle? I forgot to bring that up. Jesus' resurrection validates him as the Savior of the world. Now, I actually think that this aspect of the resurrection is the one that's most commonly understood in the church amongst Christians. We all sort of know that the resurrection is what, what proves and affirms, right? To validate something is to authenticate it, to cert- certify it, to prove it. And we know that that's what the resurrection does. See, without the resurrection, Jesus would just be forgotten. He would just be forgotten as a poor rabbi who was executed along with thousands of others by the Romans for his wild ideas. But you look through the book of Acts, skim through, read through the book of Acts, and you see that the victorious resurrection played a central role in the growth of the early church. The resurrection of Christ was the cornerstone of the gospel that the apostles spread and the foundation of the early church. In Acts 2.36, after the Spirit had come on the believers and Peter preached in Jerusalem, declaring that Christ had been raised from the dead, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's saying there, look, let there be no doubt. Let everyone in Israel, and in due time everyone across the Mediterranean world, would know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the turning point of history. It's God's open declaration. It's his confirmation that the redemptive work of Christ had been accomplished, that Jesus now had the full right and legitimate authority to take his messianic title as Lord and and Christ, to sit on that throne of grace. In chapter 13, Paul is preaching the gospel in Antioch, and he says there in chapter 13 that we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. See, the resurrection demonstrated that God the Father was satisfied with the atoning sacrifice of his son. The sacrifice was accepted, the punishment was paid, and so Jesus was raised back to life. Again, in chapter 17, Paul preached in Athens that Jesus had come to save his people, that he would return again one day to judge the world. And Paul says that he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, listen, the resurrection assures us that Jesus is Savior, that he has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. The resurrection is the public, the universal display that death has been swallowed up, as the Bible says. Later, when Paul would write Romans, you see there in in chapter 1, verse 4, He explains that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That's the declaration. And so the resurrection is central to our faith because it validates Jesus as the Savior of the world. That's that's the truth. That's the reality that you and I need. That's the reality that a lost world needs, both here in the States and across the world, amongst people groups who are previously have no access to the gospel. This is the truth they need. This is the truth our children need, our friends and neighbors need. This week, I spoke to an ex-Catholic who thinks that he no longer needs religion. 
a man in our community. This week I spoke to a man in our community, a practicing Muslim who's preparing to pray and to fast, just as we learned about this morning, preparing his heart for Ramadan. I spoke with an agnostic this past week, a good man, a moral man, a man who tries to be self-sufficient, a family man who has no place for God in his life. What is it that those three men need? They don't need a list. They, they don't need a reading plan. They don't, they don't need church attendance. They need an encounter with the crucified risen Savior. They need to be convinced that, that Jesus himself is who he said he is because of the resurrection. They need the power of the resurrection both to convince them and to transform them in encounter with the risen Christ. And I would say to you, if you're someone here this morning, you struggle to believe all of this Christian stuff. Your spouse, your parents maybe have bought in, but you're not quite yet sure. Maybe you've grown up in the church 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe you like the stability and the friendliness of the church, but you're not quite sure in your heart of hearts if Jesus truly is who he says he is, if you truly are loved and transformed, if there truly is a place in eternity after this life, I would say let the resurrection assure you. Yes, read the word. Yes, study scripture. Yes, engage and connect with other mature Christians. Yes, study the historical evidence. But more than anything, I would say pray and ask God for the inner conviction that Christ has risen. Because the resurrection proves not just out here, but it proves in here that Jesus is the one, the only Son of God who can rescue us, who is alive in us. And it assures us, it can assure you personally that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted for you and that death has been defeated for you as this crucified, risen Savior who we are raised with lives in our hearts, who we now live with. But thirdly, finally, I want to show you that the resurrection transforms us because we are united with Christ by faith. We're almost at the end of our message, but I'm going to ask you now to open up your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. How does Christ's death and resurrection save us? You have one of the blue hardback Bibles, it's page 976, Ephesians 2. We're just going to do a, do a quick dive into that text. Now, most Christians, if I asked you, how does Jesus save you? You could answer the question pretty easily as it relates to the death of Jesus, right? We've learned, because of the focus on the cross, we've learned that Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place, that the record of, of our wrongs was put on Jesus. He received our punishment, and so now we are forgiven, but how does the resurrection save us? That's a little maybe less clear. The resurrection saves us because we have been raised with Christ. It's by the resurrection that you're born again. It's by the resurrection that you are imputed, given righteousness. It's by the resurrection that you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. It's by the resurrection that your place in eternal life is secured. And it's by the resurrection that the Holy Spirit now empowers you to live the Christian life. See, it's the death and resurrection that only impact us that only have the power to save us because of this crucial reality. And this is what Ephesians is going to talk with us about. This reality that through faith you become united with Christ. Listen, the death and resurrection have no impact, no power in your life unless you have faith. Because through faith the Bible says you are now united with Christ. He is in you and you are in him. So we are joined with Christ in his death through faith. And that means that your life of sin in the coming judgment was crucified with Christ, but we are also joined with Christ in his resurrection so that we are raised with Christ to new life. It's through this concept that, that theologians call union with Christ, right? Like a, like a 
tandem parachuting, right? Where, where he goes, we go. When you're tandem parachuting, you, you, you're tied, you're, you're linked, you're synced to that other person. When they jump, you jump with them. When they pull the cord, thank God, the cord on your parachute is pulled as well. Right? When they land, you land. And so listen, the death and resurrection of Jesus matter because of our faith in him. We are joined with him and his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Let me give you one more scripture, and I know I've overdone it this morning, but Romans 6, 4 and 5, before we read from Ephesians, says this, talking about this union. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see this powerful, glorious union with Christ is made possible by God's grace? This is not just some theoretical reality. This is true in our hearts, in our daily reality that we're born again, that we have the hope of eternity. The Spirit fills us through faith. But again, as powerful as this union is, as powerful and glorious as the work of Christ is, we only receive it if we have faith. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What does Scripture teach here? It, scripts, it teaches that we were the walking dead. We were living in sin, but it was, it was a life essentially walking in death. It says there that we trespass. To trespass means you walk on somebody else's property. You cross a line into somewhere that you have no right to be. And the Bible says that we have every right as according to creation, to, to walk with God. But when we step out and rebel and walk outside of God, we're trespassing, walking outside of his will. We're following the course of this world. That means we're living in the passion of our flesh, carrying out our own desires, not the desires of our creator. And so we are children, children destined for wrath, like the rest of humanity. This is the course of all of us prior to Christ. And this is the course of those who are outside of Christ. But the passage goes on in verse 4 with these beautiful words, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had walked outside of his will. And yet, because of the great love that he had for us, he rescued us by his grace. See, listen, thank God he did not follow the normal procedure for triaging in an emergency, right? On the battlefield, those that are dead or those who are almost dead get no help, right? If you're wounded, but it's a wound you can recover from, that's who the medics go to. But God says, no, no, you're, you're dead I'm bringing life to you anyway. Because he was rich in mercy. Because of the love that he loved us, his great love for you. Yes, a general love, but a specific love for who you are. Some of you woke up this morning feeling worthless, feeling unloved. God knows you and he loves you. He created you with all of your quirks, all of your strengths, all of your weaknesses, all of the things that nobody else sees. 
God knows and loves, even when you had walked away from him. And so he saved us, he rescued us, he delivered us by his grace. And the text we just read uses three words to describe this process of God saving us by grace. And each of the Greek words there begin with a Greek prefix meaning together. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. He seated us together with Christ. Do you see what it's talking about there? It's talking about that union, that we're unified with Christ by faith. And so you have been made alive, brought from from death to life. You have been raised up with Christ. You have been seated together with Christ, that throne of grace that we talked about for 21 weeks in the book of Hebrews. The Bible says, because of your faith in Jesus, you are now unified and seated with Christ in glory. That's a true reality. This union that we see in Hebrews 2, we are united with Christ for eternity, beginning now, but for all of eternity. Why? So that he can lavish immeasurable riches. If you tried to measure God's love, if you tried to measure the riches of glory, if you tried to to measure the joy and the peace and the presence of God for all of eternity, it's immeasurable, the Bible says. The kindness of his grace, because you are in Christ, because you're united with him. And so it goes on in verse 8 to describe the life that we now have. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian brother, Christian sister, you're delivered by grace. Grace means the undeserved love and favor of God through faith. It has to come through faith, through your belief and through your trust in him. See, if you're in a skyscraper and the building catches fire and you're on the 10th floor and the firemen are sent in to rescue you and they have the ability to pick you up to to haul you out, you must take the hand of the firemen. I mean, I guess maybe he, I don't know, maybe they can knock you out and drag you out. but, But you have to take his hand, right, and let him walk you out of the burning building. You must trust him enough to believe that he can carry you to safety. That's what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is putting your trust and your hope and your belief in the one that came to rescue you. And through this faith, you can be born again. But it's a faith we just read that's not your own doing. See, even our very faith is the gracious gift of God. Our faith Our union with Christ, our salvation, is not the result of our own works. What did it say there? Well, if it was, then it's something we could boast about. Well, I believed in Jesus, and these poor, pathetic people never did. Grace, or faith, is the gracious work of God. It's not our work, it's His work. The Bible says we are His handiwork. We just read there in verse 10. We are His workmanship. We are God's handiwork. We've been created in Christ Jesus to live and to walk out the good works that God has prepared for us. You're beginning to see, you're beginning to to get some focus on how and why the resurrection is so central to our lives. It's absolutely essential to the Christian faith. It validates Jesus as the Savior of the world, and it transforms us because we are united with Christ by faith. We have been raised with Christ. That's our hope. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know this hope, you don't know what it is to have peace in your heart, you don't know what it is in the midst of your struggles to know that there's a God who walks with you, come to Christ, grab his hand, let him lead you out of the burning building and find eternal life, be born again through his death and his resurrection. But Christian, for those of you that are here today that still struggle, that are still hurting, it's this reality that we are raised with Christ that gives us hope, that gives us the ability to live the Christian life. And so to the woman who emailed me this week because her marriage is broken and hopeless. You have been raised with Christ. That's your reality. To the woman that I texted and talked with this week that is so overcome by stress and anxiety, she said it feels like her day is like an elephant sitting on her chest. You have been raised with Christ. To the man that I've known for over a decade that cannot stop drinking and he feels like his life is unraveling, through faith, you can be raised with Christ. To the teen who feels so lonely and so sad, you're beginning to believe that, that you'd be better off dead. If you have faith, you can be raised with Christ. To the man here who is stuck in a rut, who is apathetic, who is numb to the Lord, to your family, if you have faith, you can be raised with Christ. To those of you struggling with lack of discipline, overcome by sin, carrying the the, the dark cloud every day of grief, distracted, discouraged, you have been raised with Christ. Let the power of the Holy Spirit fill you with that reality this morning. Friends, the worship team is going to come, and we are going to praise and give thanks again. And I don't know for you if this is going to be a moment of joy to to celebrate the resurrection or if this is a moment of quiet prayer before God because you're desperate in need of this hope. But know today that you have been raised with Christ if your faith is in him. You are regenerated. That means born again to a new life. You're justified, declared righteous before God the moment you declare faith. You have been raised with Christ. You are being raised with Christ. That means in your present ongoing reality, you're being sanctified. You're being purified to walk in obedience as the Holy Spirit matures you and empowers you to walk out the Christian life in newness every day. And you will one day be raised. Not only are we justified and being sanctified, we are one day, we will be glorified. We will be with Christ in body and soul, raised to eternal life. Amen? Stand together. Let me pray for us. God, we come to you because of our desperate need. We come to you because you're a great God who has lavished mercy, unspeakable, immeasurable into our lives. You've sent a Savior to do all that we need, and yet we still struggle. We still struggle to believe. We believe help our unbelief. Help those this morning who are entrapped in darkness. Help those this morning who struggle to believe that there is a God, who struggle to believe that Jesus has come, that he died, that he rose again. Help those of us that cannot believe this morning that that they are lovable. And so we lift up our praise in this song and prayer because you are our living hope. We are born again through this risen Christ. We have value and love because of the risen Christ, the one who died for us and rose again. Come, Holy Spirit, even now, bring us to life. Bring us even now from death to life. That is our hope in Jesus' name.